Welcome to the Hey SGA podcast, a conversation with Chapman Student Government Association. My name is Erin, and I'm joined with my co-host, Philip. Together, we hope to further amplify student voices and concerns and encourage those around us to start a dialogue about issues within higher education. Tune in as we discuss what that means for SGA, the university, and most importantly, the students. And don't be afraid to join the conversation with us. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Hey SGA podcast. We hope everyone had a fun and safe spring break. And Aaron and I are so excited for today's episode because we have a very special guest with us. Please give a warm welcome to the president of Chapman University, Danielle Strupa. Hello, President Strupa. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with us today. We are really looking forward to talking to you about a really relevant topic right now, freedom of speech and freedom of expression especially on college campuses. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you guys. Yes, so we're excited to kind of delve into this very complex and timely topic with you. Um, So I I think before we we jump into Chapman specifically, we wanted to just kind of go over kind of the principles of free speech and freedom of expression on college campuses and within higher education. And I know it's a complicated um, issue, but from your perspective as a college administrator, as a college president, what is your kind of overview and opinion on the role of freedom of speech and freedom of expression on a college campus? Well, I, I think this is a very broad question, but of course an interesting one. Well, of course, freedom of speech uh, emanates from uh, from the First Amendment. The First Amendment it phrases actually by saying the Congress shall make no law, etc., etc. So it talks about what the Congress cannot do. But we know that the Supreme Court has held for a long time that what what the founders really meant is not just Congress, but all government agencies. So the federal government, but also the state, the local. So nobody that is governmental can infringe on free speech. So one could assume that that's not applicable to private institutions. Uh, in, ge- in fact, if this were the end of the story, it would not be applicable. But we know that in California, for example, uh, a law that was passed in 1992 is called the Leonard Law because the, the guy, who, the, the, the senator who uh, sponsored it, uh, uh, his name is Leonard, extends uh, to private institutions the same kind of protection or, or you know, requests the same kind of protection. So we are not allowed to infringe on student freedom of speech the speech that would be protected by the First Amendment if we were a government entity. So the first point to, be, to, to make sure we understand is that this is uh, mandated in the state of California. But I think that the reason why a Chapman, and I think in general why administrators should be very respectful of freedom of speech, is not just because we follow the law, which of course we have to follow, but because we believe, I believe, that freedom of speech is extremely important for a democratic society. I think some of the most uh, thorny issues can only be understood if we uh, allow different viewpoints to collide with each other. And we believe that uh, uh, even obnoxious speech should be allowed and countered with better speech. Uh, Somehow the idea being that better speech will prevail. I think that that's probably the idea why our founders wanted to have free speech. And I think that's the idea why we want to preserve it in a university. In a way, uh, and I don't want to speak for too long because I'm going to give you time to ask me all kinds of questions, but 
it's even more important in university than anywhere else because university is a place where we are here to learn. The students come to learn and we as professors, we are also a group of learners. We, we learn every day and learning cannot happen unless we are able to talk about stuff. And the moment we say, well, this topic is off limit or these ideas are off limit, then we hinder our learning process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think before kind of going forward, I think it is important to look back at the history. And I mentioned this on a previous episode, but I actually being an SGA and being exposed to these conversations, it's triggered me to pursue a different history thesis than I originally was planning on to do uh, on doing. And I'm now looking at the free speech movement of the 1950s and 60s on private universities and how it played out on private campuses. And I think what people don't see nowadays is how just half a century ago, freedom of speech was restricted to people with views trying to advance civil rights and different liberties. And now I think in the modern day, it's a different story. It's usually more conservative voices trying to advocate for more free speech. But uh, I think it is important to take kind of the historical um, outlook on the situation. I think you make a very good point, uh, as always, Philip. And I think there is a reason for that. Uh, the reason is that free speech protects those who have less voice. So in the 50s and 60s, definitely, universities tend to be way more conservative. And uh, young students wanted to have the freedom to express their ideas, and they fought for freedom of speech. Now universities are more, generally speaking, much more liberally oriented. You know, we have various statistics about the, the percentage of liberal professor, and, and the predominant narrative is certainly a more liberal narrative. And so that's why conservatives are not saying, well, wait a second, we also have free speech. So it is not surprising that it, the group of people supporting free speech is changing, because it's always the people who have less uh, availability of, of expressing their ideas in a certain context. Mm -hmm. You know, I was talking, actually, it was interesting. I was talking the other day with a colleague of yours, another student, and she comes from a different country. I'd, I'd rather not mention the country because of what I'm going to say in a few seconds. But so she's asking me, so how is it going? You know, you've been present for five years. Uh, and I said, well, you know, it's kind of an uh, interesting job. And obviously, there is a lot of satisfaction. But there are also significant stressors. And I said, you know, student protests are certainly have made my, my life complicated. Uh, by the way, I said, how is it in your country? And she said, oh, they're illegal. Students cannot protest. So I think that when our students here protest, they need to remember that the ability they have to protest, to say what they want about me or about the board or about my colleagues or about Dean Price is because we have the freedom of speech. So there is a somewhat of a contradiction in saying, I have freedom of speech and therefore I can say whatever I want about the president and, and Dean Price. I just use the two of us because we seem to be always connected. But I don't want you to say this or that. And so I was stunned because I, when, when the student told me, the student protests are illegal in my country. That's kind of brings us, it's something that I think student needs to hear. We have ability, you have the ability to protest and to, and, and to shop on campus because we uphold this principle. Okay. What are some ways that Chapman takes the role in protecting free speech and the response to free speech on campus? Well, um, I think I, I speak always openly about the importance of free speech and uh, one of the ways we protect it is by not uh, <laughs> taking action when people ask us to fire people that say stuff they don't like. I, I think that that's one of our, 
most concrete ways by which we protect free speech. And uh, uh, as you know, uh, we stood pretty strongly on a variety of incidents in which people were under attack on one side or the other of the spectrum, by the way. That's a, I think that's an important thing because of what they said. Um, there was recently a, a petition to fire a professor with more than 1,200 signatures and uh, you know, for, for, for something that he allegedly said. And uh, I think that the university takes things very seriously and obviously we look whether any violation of policy has taken place. But expressing views, it will never be a violation of policy. Uh, and as we know, uh, the, the Supreme Court has very clearly supported the idea that even the use of offensive words is tolerated when you want to convey political messages. Uh, there are lots of ca court case studies that one can look up, and the court has been very clear. In fact, in many cases, when you convey political message, you are bound to become offensive to one group or another. And I think that that's one of the things that the, that the um, Supreme Court protects. We had the discussion with honor students. I do this twice a year. Uh, every semester, uh, Professor Carmichael assembles his class and I present in front of them and we talk about free speech. Yeah. And uh, we had this discussion actually just a couple of weeks ago. And actually, we went in a different direction because I usually explain why I think freedom of speech is very important. Um, but this time I said, let, let's assume, which I don't concede, but let's assume that free speech should be curbed. How would that work? And I thought we had a very interesting discussion. And I think that one of the things that emerge is that if you decide to curb free speech, there will be very rapidly very negative consequences that I think everybody would see. Uh, Unless, of course, the, except for the person who decides what is banned, most other people are going to be unhappy. Yeah. Yeah, and with that being said, I know that a big concern for students is the response that university has to certain incidents that does happen on campus. Are you able to speak a little bit more towards the, the timeline that the university takes when an incident does happen and um, the time basically that they hear about the incident and then their response and what that looks like? Well, I, it, it's a, that's again also an interesting uh, topic and uh, the answer is that it really depends very much on the specific incident. For example, if an incident includes a student of ours, we have certain responsibilities. So let's say that a student is a, or a professor is alleged to have done something uh, that should be um, disciplined for. Well, the first thing we need to do is, of course, is to do an investigation. That's why I was very disappointed when I saw some of those uh, Instagrams in which people were asking for firing a professor, and uh, there was an assumption in, in most of those messages that there shouldn't be a process. Well, there is always going to be a process. Uh, first of all, because we have to ascertain whether the facts that are alleged took place or not. And then, what, let's assume that so the facts actually never took place, that's the end of the investigation. But then the second step is that, yes, the fact did occur. Well, is that a violation? So that's a second phase of the investigation. And then finally, there is a third phase, which is the fact that if, even if we decide to have a discipline, whether it's for a student or for a faculty or for an administrator, in virtually all cases, we are bound to confidentiality. 
Uh, if we expel a student, if we give an F to a student, if we uh, reprimand or suspend from pay a, a faculty or a staff member, the, this, uh, the recipients of the disciplines are protected in their confidentiality, so we will not be able to say it. So sometimes it, it looks like we are being silent or we are not taking any action and that's nothing could be farther from the truth but we have rules that we need to follow and I think people would agree that these are important rules you know I, I know that we have students that every once in a while get caught for uh, plagiarizing or some other form of uh, uh, academic dishonesty I don't think they would like us to make a public statement saying this student just got an F in Math 110 because he was cheating. You know that we have to take action, but we don't have to tell people what action we took. So that uh, creates a tension sometimes, which is really the consequence of how the rules are. And I think that that's one of the things that uh, Dean Price Task Force was designed to do, is also to help us figure out how can we respond in ways that are effective and making sure that people understand that we are looking into matters, but we cannot tell you what we are doing. And that, that's, a, that's a difficult thing. That is a great transition into what I wanted to talk about next, which is the Campus Expression Task Force. So uh, providing some context for people listening, back in the fall, I received, SGA received a message from President Scrupa and Dean Price regarding the Campus Expression Task Force that they hope to create. And um, the task force was charged with the broad goal of developing recommendations to assist campus administrators and senior leadership, um, enhance the student experience and create a more inclusive community, and specifically looking at how to address harm when responding to incidents of, um, you know, that harm that was created by speech or expression. And Aaron and I both were able to sit on the task force along with other student leaders and uh, staff and faculty, and I think it was a really productive six-week session. Uh, I'd love to hear what Aaron thinks first and then kind of going into some of the details and opening the up conversation up to get President Strupa's input. But Aaron, what were your um, perspectives of being on, on the task force? Yeah, for me, I felt like the... Expression Task Force was very informative, especially as a student, getting to fully understand um, what free speech entails and what free expression entails at the university level and why, you know, what we might think may be beneficial might not actually be beneficial in terms of free speech and when it comes to our own ideologies. And I felt like um, the list that we comprised was very comprehensive. And I do think that it's a great recommendation to go before the administration and, and, and hopefully Chapman would be able to consider that when they are making these decisions. And I think it would be important for the student body to have access to this list so that they also are informed of what goes into the process and what that might look like in higher education. Yeah. Um, just to piggyback off that point, for people listening, if you're interested in checking out these recommendations, they are going to be listed on, or posted, I should say, on a website within Student Affairs. Our civic engagement team has devised a website devoted to kind of free speech, freedom of expression, and the role of the university, and this document will be on there to check out. But I wanted to kind of go through the four main recommendations with you, President Strupa. Um, and the first being considering the role and purpose of university statements in response to incidents. So obviously statements have become 
probably a big part of your job <laughs> this past year. Um, and I know students care a lot about what the university is saying, but there's a lot of debate about, you know, who the university is. And I remember Dean Price mentioned in one of his, you know, thought of the weeks that the university is not necessarily just you, but it's kind of the collective of everyone within Chapman. So part of these recommendations were, you know, creating a written policy for when it's appropriate to release statements or um, creating more of a, or excuse me, utilizing more of the new VP for DEI in creating the statements because DEI is a big part of this conversation. What is your viewpoint on the role of university statements, especially in responding to incidents of harm? Well, it's a very good question. I appreciate that. I haven't seen the recommendations yet, so I'm actually eager to see them. To be honest, and uh, you know, you know, you guys, when I talk with you, I'm always very frank. I think many of these statements are very performative. Okay, so something happens, and every university comes up with essentially the same thing. And to me, that diminishes dramatically the value of these statements. They're like just a, a safe things to say. So that doesn't mean that they're incorrect or they don't express true feelings. I just feel that, that they, they are very repetitious. Yeah. And uh, there was an article on the Chronicle of Higher Education in which he said, yeah, I think the title was A Year of Apologies, in which he talks about how for the entire last year, every university, every president has been sending out these apologies messages. It takes away a little bit of, of, uh, of the value of what is being said. So that's my, my first response. And at the same time, I know that people want to hear it said. The second thing is that I agree with, uh, with Dean Price that the university is a multi-form expression. And uh, we are, what, 12,000 people between faculty, staff, students, you know, give or take. And there are lots of different views. And so it is a little disingenuous to say the university believes this and that. Well, many people in the university, some people, most people, we don't really know exactly. I don't really know. In fact, I know that that's the case because every time I write a statement, I get complaints usually from everybody. I get complaints from people that think I didn't go strong enough in condemning something, and I get complaints from people saying, you shouldn't condemn them because I don't think there is anything to condemn there. Or, com or people say, well, you're, you're buying into a narrative which is not the real story. Why so... I think it's a little disingenuous when we say the university does this and that. Now, as a university, we have some values. And certainly, we, we believe that it's important to uh, fight against racism, fight against injustice. We are a university that is based on the fundamental values of the disciple of Christ, though we are affiliated, we are not part of the church. But, you know, this is a university that began the day of the inauguration of President Lincoln because we wanted to be making a statement of our values that were values that would oppose any form of racism. So this is true. But the response to specific incident is always fraught with the complexity of the detail. And so I think that there is that challenge. So when the university makes a statement, again, first of all, there is an kind of an anesthetic value of sending a statement every other week, or if not every week. And, and second, there is an issue of, of the, the specific detail of what has happened, which is sometimes uh, uh, people don't know exactly what happened for several days. But there is a desire of going out immediately to make sure we said that we said where we stand. 
but sometimes we really don't know. I mean, we remember cases that happened over the last several years in which the immediate response was uh, 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 characterizing an event, as a, an event as a racist instance, and when it turns out it really wasn't. And so there is always a danger in being trigger-happy, so to speak, in responding. So I think it's important that the university has a public posture, which I think we have, of being a university that cares about justice, that cares about inclusion, that cares about equity, that cares about diversity. I think we have to be a little careful when we sort of restate that for every event, even when sometimes the event, it turns out later on, it wasn't really related to that. So I think that we, it's a, there is a, it's a fine line. I like what you said about maybe having the VP of DEI being involved in that. We tried in the past to to uh, create a system by which it's not always the same person who speaks. And that's why, for example, this week on Tuesday, paradoxically, just a, a, maybe an hour or so before the tragic events in Atlanta, we sent out a statement of support with our Asian, uh, you know, Asian-American uh, friends and, and citizens and, and fellows. But... Uh, this was written by uh, our um, dean of the chapel. Then, of course, we had the horrific events in Atlanta that followed up. And I think yesterday afternoon, there was an, another statement sent out to me. But you can see how this kind of weakens the value. So you have a statement on Tuesday morning. Then you have a statement on Thursday afternoon. Um, at some point, people want to see the statement. But what is any statement adding, really, to, the, to, the, to our position? Our position is that, of course, we protest any act of hatred, and we protest any act of racism, um, and I'm, I'm not sure how important it is that we repeat that every single time. But uh, as you pointed out, this is something that we think students want to see, and maybe members of the community want to see. Um, if, uh, if you don't make it, sometimes people take that as a sign that you support what has happened, which I think is a huge leap. Uh, because the fact that there is no statement doesn't mean that we, we felt that a certain awful incident is, uh, is, is to be supported. So I think that there is this other strange jump that silence is taken as a, as a scent, which is not the case. So I, I'm looking forward to see what the specific recommendation will be here and see how we can implement it. Because believe me, there is nothing that would make me and my colleagues, including Dean Price, happier than having a very clear uh, sense of what and when. But I'd be surprised if the recommendation gives us that, because this is too complicated. But I, I'm looking forward to reading it. Something that I know that I'm interested in hearing your opinion on is earlier you mentioned um, free expression giving the opportunity for education and informing others and being able to, you know, broaden our perspectives, which leads us to the second recommendation on the list, which is to develop intentional and meaningful opportunities for forums, discussion, and expression. And how do you see that manifesting at the university with, the diff with different student groups, within faculty, within professors, and in the administration, in the Chapman community as a whole? Well, that's a recommendation I really like. I think it would be wonderful to really have a series of highly charged discussions. I mean, there are a lot of topics that are really complicated, and I think nobody benefits from the fact that people don't feel free to discuss them openly. And I think that those should be on the table. I think we should have, you know, we should have an open discussion, for example, what, uh, what people feel about, say, um, reparations. 
I mean, that's a major topic, okay? The country is... Can we have a discussion in which we have people free to express their views, pros and cons? I, for, for one, I would admit that I'm ignorant about the topic. I mean, I have my, maybe my instinctive reaction, but I, don't, I haven't studied it. I haven't. So it would certainly benefit somebody like me from sitting there and, you know, for once, for once not to be the talker, but to be the listener and sort of listen to people that explain to me why they think this is a good time to do it and other people saying why they think it's not a good idea and allowing me the, the ability to, to make a better informed decision. You know, I think it would be nice if we could have maybe advanced readings that we could do. And this is just one topic. I mentioned the topic because clearly the nation is interested in this discussion. You know, President Biden has made it clear. The state of California has created a commission. So this is something that will come up in front of us. And I think that rather than us reacting instinctively, it would be really nice if we had an opportunity to have a, a, an open discussion. And, and if reparation is, it turns out to be a good idea, how is that get implemented and who and how? I mean, these are very complex issues, and I think that would be a great discussion. That's just one topic. But uh, I think that we could have plenty of those. Uh, another interesting topic is um, immigration. Of course, I'm an immigrant, so as you may imagine, I have my own views like everybody has, but that would be a, a very important topic. I mean, I don't think people know what the issues are. I don't think people understand how complex this is. And in fact, if you want to prove that these are complex issues, that I think, maybe I'm wrong, so I apologize with the listeners if my quote now is wrong, but I think it was under President Reagan that there was the last amnesty uh, in, uh, for, for immigrants. And Congress has been working on this on and off for the last maybe 20, 30 years. It's very hard to come up with a comprehensive immigration reform. I think everybody wants it. But of course, they want it maybe in different ways. You know, I'm sure on one side of the spectrum or the other, there are different ideas of what that means. But isn't that the discussion we should have, especially us in, in California? Uh, you know, I think it would be a very important discussion. So that would be something that I would welcome. And again, I think it could be done in a way that it's respectful of different views. Um, so those are two topics. But Believe me, we can find uh, uh, dozens of those topics. And I think having this open discussion might be helpful in removing some of the, of the tension and the instinct, which is to simply uh, respond instinctively to the issue and uh, without really knowing what the issue is. You know, most people that talk about immigration, they, uh, they're not aware of the, of the plight of the people who are here currently. I mean, so one simple solution may, may just be completely unacceptable. And others are unaware of the economic uh, significance that immigration has for this country in a positive sense. And some are afraid, uh, unaware of the, on the other hand, the challenges that a system that is essentially broken and that doesn't really affect any effective control has. So those are good topics in which I don't think there are, uh, I mean, I'm sure there are people with, uh, with uh, um, bigoted, views, but most people will have interesting views that I would like to hear debated. And again, that's another topic of which I'm not an expert, but we have experts, for example, in our law school. So I would like to hear our law professors to be part of that debate and, and educate me and everybody else as to what the challenges are. I agree. I think that it is important to 
you know, educate ourselves on those different perspectives and fully understand a topic. But where do you foresee these conversations happening? Would it be within the classroom setting? Would it be put on by the university? Is it student-led? Is it faculty-led? Where exactly do you, do you see this discussion happening? I don't have an answer to that yet. Uh, I think one thing that I found helpful in the past was the these town halls that I put together in which... Uh, we, they, these were town hall for faculty and staff, but students were allowed, even though not many students participated. And they're usually about uh, university issues, like should we have a school of engineering? That was probably my very, very first town hall that I hosted uh, back in 2007. So you see how fast that worked. Uh, the idea of those town halls usually was that in those particular cases, I would introduce the topic, but I would not be the leader of the topic. It was a way for me to say, so in that particular case, I would say, you know, um, I'm interested in seeing whether we should have a school of engineering. And I remember I had a speaker at the time who was actually the dean of engineering at UCI. And after that, there may be a moderator, but we don't control the, the debate. There is, it's really designed to make sure everybody would be able to. So maybe that might be a, a, a way um, I think they should be as open as possible. I don't mind them having also them in the classroom. But in the classroom, there is a little bit of a hierarchical power structure. If I'm the teacher and you figure out where I stand, even though you think I'm a really nice guy and even though we have a good relationship, I'm still the guy who's going to give you the grade. And so I, it, it would be naive to believe that that will not have any impact on how you're going to object to some of my statements. So you will object in a much more mild manner than you might want to do normally. So I think an open forum where, where we remove as much as we can some of these power differentials is important. Now, you can never remove them completely because your teacher is going to be in the room or, or the dean of students is going to be in the room. So, but a classroom is a particularly, I think, loaded area. I would rather see this in a larger area where you don't have one person that takes a higher role. And, and I would like to see students suggesting uh, topics as well as faculty and, uh, and staff. It, shouldn't be, it certainly should not be the president suggesting a topic or the dean of students. This should really be topic the students and faculty and staff feel are important. And, and we should design it in a way to make it as, as easy as possible for people to take opposing views. Now, I'm not naive either. So uh, how feasible that will be and how open people will feel that they can speak, that's, that remains to be seen. And I think the success of the project will rely on whether we can have those really frank debates or not. I know, for example, I can usually have them with you guys and we, we exchange ideas fairly openly, but I'm not blind to the fact that I remain the president of the university. And so uh, I, as much as I think you, you trust me, I also know that you still think, well, the guy is the president. So that, that it's always very difficult to create a really neutral environment. It's very complicated. Agreed, agreed. So the third recommendation is kind of educating people about all of what we talked about. So providing educational sessions and trainings on campus expression guidelines. And for folks who don't know, Dean Price has kind of just embarked on this endeavor of educating people. He created this presentation called The Role, or I forget the exact wording, but The Unique Role of the University, especially in dealing with, you know, expression and harm. And it's a 45-minute presentation. It's very in-depth and educational. So if you have the opportunity, I highly suggest you check it out. 
Um, but I know he, he showed it to SGA, he showed it to staff, and I'm sure you've seen it, President Strupa, or at least heard of it. And this is his um, way of doing that. But what other ways do you think we can educate students specifically on these complex topics? Oftentimes, you know, students see, you know, why wouldn't the university, you know, fire someone who says something racist? And people don't kind of have a full understanding of the principles involved. So from your perspective, what is the best way to provide these educational sessions and trainings? Well, I think certainly what Dean Price is doing is very helpful. I think we need to make sure this is reinforced, or I should say pre-enforced at uh, uh, events such as uh, orientation. I think it's a big job that part of the responsibility could fall on SGA, frankly, because you have the direct line to students. I would wish our faculty were willing and, and able to do some of that in their classes. Uh, you don't have to take to waste a huge amount of time, but you can you know, remind students of these values, even just maybe giving the reference to the, to the video that Dean Price has made. Because you are right. I think sometimes people are angry because they don't understand or they don't know some of the rules that we have to abide by. And they don't understand how these rules that, that appear to be uh, awful because it's protecting a racist professor or a racist student, it's also the same rule that protects them when somebody is attacking them. You know, I don't remember who said that, but you know, you'd rather have one innocent, no, what is one guilty person free or 10 guilty person free rather than have one innocent in jail or whatever. It, part of the point is that even in the regular legal system, we have rules that sometimes you feel like they're really ridiculous, but they're designed to protect us all. So, uh, you know, I, I remember the first time I realized, I, I learned about the Fourth Amendment <laughs> was when I uh, learned that people put their beer into these brown bags and everybody knows what is in the brown bag, but you officially you can't search the brown bag. You have no right to, tell, to ask me what is in the brown bag. Well, that seems like a silly rule. But we know that the, the context is a large rule. The context is that you want to protect the citizen from the intrusion of a police system or of a government system. I think sometimes some of the rules that we have on campus may appear silly, but I think that the big context, you want to protect everybody from intrusion, which in most cases would be from people in, power, in position of power. You know, can you imagine if the dean of, of students had the power to actually uh, expel students that he think they misbehaved? Well, that would be a tremendous power. What if the president had the power, as many people have asked me to do, to fire faculty that I think misbehaved? Yeah, it would make things much simpler, right? Because somebody does something I don't like and I say, okay, you're fired, like... I think our former president, right? No, not the president of George Mason, of, of Chapman, the president of the United States, that you remember, you are fired. Uh, thing. Th th that's not how we operate. We don't operate by firing people. Like we have, we have systems in place, and those systems sometimes are painful, and sometimes don't lead you to the right result. That's the other thing that we have to accept. It's just in the legal system. There are people who may have misbehaved, may have violated important laws, but for one reason or another, maybe because the search that proved that in fact the guy had whatever, the guns or the, or the drugs, but that, that uh, um, there was no authorization for the search. Well, he walks away. Maybe the guy is clearly guilty, but he wasn't Mirandized properly. 
he walks away. So these are prices that we pay for a system that protects us all. So I'm not even saying that every decision we make is the right decision. I'm just saying that we follow rules which are designed to make sure that we are all protected. And if some rules are, are considered to be wrong, we should talk about that. That's another thing that we could say. If, if students and faculty and staff or some portion of them feel that a certain process or rule is not working well, we should be open to reconsidering it. That would be another interesting topic for discussion. If we find out that there are some rules that apparently make a lot of sense, but the, the outcome, the end result, is actually a consistent violation of our values, well, maybe we should look at that. So I think all of that should be open for discussion, just like we do with the laws, right? We put in place laws through our representatives that we believe are important and good laws. Every once in a while, we find out that, you know, that law really is not working well. It's, maybe there was a good intention, but that's not what it does. Well, people change the law. You amend the law. You know, the Lennar law that I described before was instituted in 1992, then it was amended in 2006 with improvement to protect, in particular, the 2006 uh, amendment was designed to protect uh, the freedom of the press of uh, university newspapers. So that's the process we follow. You put something forward, you approve it, it doesn't work, you modify, you improve it. I think we should do the same with the university. And that takes us into our fourth and final recommendation on the document, which is to craft a community compact for students, which basically would be a document that develops inclusion and, and emphasizes the importance of a supportive campus community for the students. It's not something that would be signed, but all students would see this document at the beginning of their Chapman experience, which would allow them to be aware of how their actions and their words may affect their fellow community members um, and how they may unintentionally or intentionally you know, hurt someone and be aware of that. So how do you see that playing a role at Chapman? And is that something that the university is looking into possibly including to help the Chapman community as a whole be more aware of our actions and how free expression can lead to being harmful, but is also something that could be educational? I would be open to seeing what the specific form of the compact would be. I, you know, I always say to, to students, but to everybody else, I practice and uh, believe in free speech, but that doesn't mean that I go out saying hideous stuff. Uh, you know, I, 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 I teach my children to be able to express their views, but I also teach them to be polite and respectful. So I think that two things are not in contrast with each other. The fact that I'm free to say stuff that is offensive doesn't mean that I have to say it. Just like my kids, they are free to say, but that doesn't mean they should be rude. So I think that we, something like that would probably help people understand that, yeah, sure, you have the right to say that. Uh, of course you do. But as you do it, you should, I think, consider, are you, are you willing to be offensive? Now, in some cases, the, the response from the student would be, yeah, I understand this is offensive, but, but I believe that this is an important comment that I'm making and I need to make it, and they will do it. But at least they will do it after having this consideration. Also, because the notion of offensive, I have to say, has changed dramatically over the last 10, 15 years. Now we consider offensive things that nobody would have considered offensive 20 years ago. So th that's why I'm a little careful about saying, well, this is offensive. Well, yeah, it's offensive, but our sensitivities have changed. 
Uh, I'll give you an example. Yesterday I was on the on a Zoom with a friend of the universe who I never met before. He's a donor to our legacy plan. Wonderful person. And we had a spectacular conversation about, you know, I, the, the Zoom session was mostly for me to thank her, but to get to know her better and to talk. And we had a really very pleasant conversation. At some point of the conversation, uh, she said, by the way, uh, where are you coming from? This is something that when I grew up in this country, everybody would always say. You know, I came to this country as a foreigner. Most of my fellow students were foreigners. So we were always asking out of curiosity. And of course, I was actually happy. She asked me about that. And I said, I'm, I'm Italian. My, my, my mom comes from Northern Italy. My father comes from Southern Italy. So I took an opportunity to, and we talked about it. And she loves Italy, blah, blah, blah. But as you know, this is considered one of the questions that you should not be asking. You know, the University of California, I think, has published a list of uh, microaggression and where you're from is one of those. So I think that's, I, I make this example. It was clear here in the context that she was just genuinely curious. You know, she, she heard the accent, but the question implies you have an odd accent. She, it was asked with the greatest intention. Of course, I would never take offense to that. Other people might. So I want to be a little careful about saying, well, you should never be offensive because the definition of offensiveness has changed and has become more, and, and it depends a lot on the context, right? Because the same question of where you're coming from could have asked to me in the, in the middle of a very heated debate in which I'm saying something about the United States and somebody says, yeah, but where are you coming from? And that, that's a very different question. Okay, so I, I'm again, I'm not naive. I'm just saying that to have overarching statement about what is offensive is always complicated. But I think that to have a compass that so, sort of says, you know, and I, I don't know what you guys specifically have in mind, it sort of says that we, we respect freedom of speech, we respect freedom of expression, we will protect them. But we also need to be aware every time we speak or say or express ourselves, we need to be aware of the context and the people around us. and. We need to strive for a way to express our views that is conducive to a collaborative community. So that what I say may be in disagreement with you guys, but I say it in a way that is not demeaning. So it's an effort that I think people should make. It's an effort that I want my family to make, it's an effort that I try to make. And, and I think it's very important that we, that we underline that as a community of if you want to use a corny expression, or polite people, we talk politely to each other, and uh, and when we disagree, we try to do it, you know, as we do, like say in the faculty senate, people will say I respectfully disagree. It still means I really disagree. In fact, usually when you say respect disagree, you mean you really disagree. But what you are saying is that I respect you as a person. I don't have a beef with you as a person. I just don't think your idea is the right one. And that's, I think, is a big difference and it's worthwhile. So I, to make a shorter answer to your question, I, I think that would be very nice to look at. I, I'd be happy to see a way that we can earlier on tell our students what our values are. And, and one of our values is respect. Yeah, so and I, I completely agree. And so those are the four main recommendations. Obviously, they're more in-depth within the actual report, but hopefully everyone gets the chance to see those once they are officially published on the website. Uh, we'll make sure to include the link to this site in the podcast episode. But we are coming up at the end of this episode, and I think we just want to conclude with maybe your thoughts, one-minute thoughts on, and this is going to be hard to put it into a minute, but... Uh, uh, is that because I talk too long? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Maybe just a little bit. Just kidding. Um, but 
this balance between, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and freedom of speech and freedom of expression. I think so often people look at these two entities, for lack of a better word, and they say, oh, they are exclusive. You can't, you have to prioritize one or the other. But in reality, they are necessary for one one another to thrive. So President Strupa, if you could kind of give a message to the Chapman community about just that, uh, what would it be? And what would you like to tell people? My message is that, like you just said, you know, very eloquently, they're not mutually exclusive. I think we need to strongly protect our freedom of speech and expression, but I also think that we need to strongly learn how to walk away from racism and bigotry. And those are things that really uh, poison our community. And we really need to, to, to make a concerted effort. We need to make an effort that whenever our divisions exist, they exist on ideas and not on, on, on people. So in a way, the company we were talking about before should accomplish some of that. I can disagree strongly with you without having to negate you as a person. And you know, frankly, I ask this of our faculty, of our administrators, but also of our students, because, uh, and you, you know this better than me because I try not to look into the social media, but the, the way in which many of our students express themselves in the social media is filled with hatred and it's filled with rudeness, and it's filled with personal, personal attacks. So I don't think the student can ask much of the university until they also practice uh, a, a form of restraint in the way in which their expressions are used. When a faculty says something you don't like, and the response on, on, the, on Instagram is uh, fire the mother dot dot dot, that's not an example of the community we want to create. The response is, I believe this person violated the policy of the institution and I want the institution to look into this and take action. And so I, I, I think that we need to really all work together on this and trying to express each other uh, in ways that will make our free speech a positive strength and not a negative one. Free speech is not an excuse for, for, for racism. But as the Supreme Court has said, free speech will also allow offensive words and acts that may appear hateful. So that's, a, that's the balance. And that is, that is well said. Well, President Strupo, we want to thank you for your thoughts and giving your opinions on free expression and how that may look at Chapman and on the university level. And that just wraps everything up for this episode. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. And remember that if you want to submit any questions or have any suggestions for our podcast, DM us on Instagram at ChapmanSGA. And our episodes are released every other Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So thank you. Well, Philip and Erin, thank you very much. Thank you, President Strupa. Take care, everyone.